Hi, my name is Dr. Caroline Batten. I'm here for the Oxford Fantasy Podcast, and my honored guest today is Dr. Megan Cavell, who's a lecturer in medieval English uh, at the University of Birmingham. And Hello. we are chatting about Fantastic Beasts. Hi, Megan. Hi. I jumped the gun there and said hello too early. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. We're just, we're all keen to talk about weird fantasy animals, right? Totally. I love fantasy creatures. Don't we all? So with, with animals in fantasy, uh, we, there are loads and loads of authors who sort of make up their own amazing, fantastic creatures. And there are authors who, you know, draw on really explicit sources for their, for their creatures. I'm thinking like uh, The Witcher, for example, where all of the beings are taken from Polish folklore and stuff. Um, but there are some fantasy animals that seem to kind of belong to everybody, right? To, to be things that we all know about, like unicorns and dragons. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess uh, first place to start is um, how, like, in your opinion, like, what's, what's the history of people making up weird fantasy creatures? Like, where do you start when you teach this? Like, where does this, where does this all come from? Like, take us through. A hard question, Caroline. Sorry. That's a big question. Sorry. Can't we start with what's your favorite fantasy animal? No, I'm kidding. Much better. <laughs> what is it? Animal. Oh, like, probably unicorns. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, I'm an adult, so I don't really have a favorite anything. But probably unicorns if pressed. Just because having grown up with the last unicorn book and... Uh, film and then the comic book of it. I'm pretty obsessed with that whole series. But anyway, uh, it's a really good question, the history of it. So I tend to start when I'm teaching, I start with classical studies and classical sources. Um, so I usually start with Pliny the Elder's Natural History, which is a Latin text from the first century. But of course, he's drawing on a lot of material that's already in circulation, not just in Latin or in Greek, but in all sorts of different languages and folklores. So he's got Jewish tales, he's got Egyptian, Indian material in there, and then also Greek and Latin stuff. So it's kind of like, a, he's a bit of a magpie and a collector, and he just brings together all these different sources. Sometimes he's good at telling you who his source is or where it's come from, and sometimes he just kind of plops it in there. They usually start with, Pliny, because Pliny's good for all types of animals, real and not real, and sometimes he has strong opinions about the mythical ones, and sometimes he just works them in as though they're actual animals that you can just kind of go and see at the zoo. Uh, if zoos existed then, which I suspect they did not. <laughs> Maybe a menagerie. Um, so I start with that, but there's so much more that you could do. I mean, you could go further back, you could go to other countries, you could go to ancient Egypt, you could go back to Mesopotamian stuff, um, if you're interested in archaeology especially, but I usually start with Pliny and then I kind of trace him forward. I guess I start with him partly because he's so heavily drawn on in the medieval period, which is my area of research, and in medieval bestiaries, which take him or they take people who've taken his material, like Isidore of Seville, um, and they use that as the core for a lot of bestiary entries. Yeah, so what kind of fantastic animals do we get in Pliny? Oh, all sorts. So there's werewolves, uh, there are dragons, of course, there are unicorns, and he tells us, well, he tells us about the monoceros, which is sometimes conflated with the unicorn and sometimes not. 
Um, so he tells us about this one horned creature that's part stag and part horse, and I think it has elephant feet in his version. Um, and it's very fierce and hard to catch. And then it's in um, Isidore of Seville, who's a seventh century uh, historian who's drawing from Pliny and writing his etymologies. It's in there that Isidore specifically says the monoceros, that is the unicorn. So there's unicorns, basilisks, he's got some good bits on basilisks. Um, so there's a bit of a Harry Potter linkage there, I guess. And loads that we would kind of recognize, like stuff that's yeah. lasted for a while in our family. Absolutely. These are the kind of big mythical animals. These aren't the, you know, made up ones that we get in any modern fantasy texts that are interested in building in new creatures as part of their narrative. These are the ones, like you say, that belong to everyone um, that we get in lots of different cultural contexts that have a really long history. Mythical beasts, basically, rather than just fantastic beasts. How would you, what, like, what's the distinction between mythical and fantastic beasts? Well, I've just made up the difference. Um, but mythical beasts, for, <laughs> mythical beasts for me would be ones that appear in myth, so that we have in ancient texts. And fantastic beasts would be in whatever fantasy text you're reading, um, any creatures that are supernatural and made up, but that can encompass mythical creatures. So there'll be some recognizable ones, but just to take a Harry Potter example, there's also going to be like the Erumpent, which is a rolling created creature, not a mythical creature like the unicorn or dragon. Um, there's room for all sorts of different types of imagination and fictionalizing in fantasy texts. Yeah, absolutely. So you also mentioned about medieval bestiaries that drew on Pliny and on Isidore. What's a bestiary? Okay, so bestiaries are great. If you are listening to this podcast while you are out for a walk, which is what I usually do when I'm walking, I listen to podcasts, you're going to have to go home immediately and go to any website like bestiary.ca or go to the Aberdeen Bestiary website and just look at the pictures of animals because bestiaries are the best thing in the world. So it's a tradition in the 12th and 13th century, it does extend beyond that, but that's kind of when it's at its most popular, of collections of animals. So real and fantastic animals, also plants and stones, um, all brought together into one collection. And then you'll have a bit of text about them. You'll have a religious allegory about them and you'll have their image, um, painting or drawing or whatever. And it starts off using Pliny using Isidore of Seville and using an anonymous text called the Physiologus, which is descriptions of animals with a Christian allegory gloss. It uses those as the cortex and then people just get really excited about it and they start adding in loads and loads more material. So you get longer and longer bestiaries. You get, so you've got about 50 animals in the Physiologus. By the end of this tradition, you've got bestiaries with 150 animals and they've got not just sort of not the foreign wildlife that's in the physiologus but you know there's sheep in them there's other made-up animals like the bonicon which shoots acidic poo at uh people what? who are trying to hunt it <laughs> have you not heard of the bonicon I, I mean never clearly we should <laughs> write some new books to encompass this creature and its acid poo the bonicon is basically an ox but it has curvy in horns, so that's not a very useful defense mechanism. As a result, it has developed another defense mechanism, which is that it can shoot 
acid poo about a mile. Well, there's different accounts, different lengths, but there's lots of great images. So if you go, listeners, go and Google Bonacon, B-O-N-N-A-C-O-N, go to the images and you will see so many amazing hunters trying to stab Bonacons and just being sprayed with facefuls of acid poo. Uh, I love medieval literature and art. love it. Where does this stuff come from? Like, how, how do people come up with this? I don't know about the Bonacon. I, I haven't spent that much time with it. But what I will say is that there's no accompanying allegory for this. So for a lot of the animals, most of the animals, there's an allegorical reason to include them. And there is not for this, which means I can only assume it's included for its humor value. You don't need... To, be, to make up a highfalutin rationale for including a poo ox, it's just funny. Yeah, it makes me think of the Exeter book riddles, you know, where you have some very sort of high-flying riddles about like, oh, you know, the divine storm brought to the earth by God and creation and gospel books. And then you've also got, you know, the onion riddle, which is about genitalia just for the purpose of being funny and fun and life-affirming you know absolutely but that's the nice thing about collections of material in which the riddles are collections of very different types of material all written in the same way but also bestiaries are just different collections of material and it's this kind of attempt to get all of creation and that includes the high and the low that includes the you know the unicorn which is a symbol for christ or the phoenix another symbol for god um, as well as the Bonacon, which is a poo ox. Yeah, so so the original purpose of these bestiaries was to use animals for allegory? Yeah, so bestiaries were probably first produced in monasteries for monastic context, so in, in for monks, um, but then they become luxury objects and whether they're being produced newly or being you know existing ones are being sold on in secular-ish as well as far as there is a secular context in the middle ages um there are non-religious people there are aristocrats buying them and keeping them and using them generally quite pious ones um so yeah they're being used for moral edification they're good for you to learn through animals to learn through fantastic creatures to learn through the plants that are in them um, you look at the image, you read the basic description, then you read the allegory and you put together, basically you understand the order of the world around you, the order of creation according to the Christian context in which these were written and drawn. So fantastic beasts are part of the way that the world is made in God's image, right? These are evidence of how great the Christian God is because he's made all these wonders, right? Absolutely, yeah. And there's no differentiation at this point between mythical and real. Um, I mean, the original texts that the bestiaries are drawing on are from the Mediterranean, from North Africa, from not the places that the bestiaries are being produced in Northern Europe. So there is an element of maybe they just didn't know these weren't real animals that they're including because they're very far away from their sources. But equally, you know, there's also room for the imagination and creativity. But these mythical animals appear in the Bible, and that's the ultimate reason that they can be drawn into the bestiary. 
because there are unicorns, there are dragons in the Bible, and you don't question the legitimacy of the biblical text if you're Christian in this period. So yeah, so they get to be in there alongside animals who they could see walking around right next to them. Like sheep. Like sheep or hedgehogs. Oh, there's a really good bestiary hedgehog. Tell me about the bestiary hedgehog. <laughs> so the hedgehog uh, is said to roll around on fallen fruit and get the fruit all in its spines, which it then takes back to feed its babies with. <laughs> sometimes it's apples, sometimes it's grapes. Um, and there, so there are lots of excellent hedgehog images where it's just covered in little red fruits on, on its back. And then it goes and it feeds its babies with these. It's like tiny kebabs. Yeah. <laughs> That's adorable. But surely some of these authors at least would have, you know, maybe seen a hedgehog in the wild. Sure. Uh, not with fruit stuck on it. Where, did, like, so what's the line between fact and fiction here? I think it didn't matter if it was true, if you knew it to not be true. It mattered that it was in an authoritative text and it was being passed around in that way and that you could learn a lesson from it. Mm-hmm. And if you could learn a lesson from it, then who cares if it's real or not? It is much more of a kind of intellectual and religious exercise. So it doesn't matter that you know that hedgehogs don't have fruit on their backs or that dragons don't exist. What matters is that there's a description of it which you ruminate upon and look at the image and read the allegory and engage with scripture and the allegorical portion and think religiously. So it doesn't matter if it's not real. I mean, people must have known that parts of these weren't real. There are also some cool bits, especially in the bird sections, where there's a lot of natural observation that is clearly going on. So that's interesting to find. But on the whole, the bestiary tradition is not as scientifically progressive as, you know, there is observation going on in the 12th century. There is a movement of science and agriculture there are people working in very real and practical ways with the natural world and that's not what the bestiaries are doing it's not it's a fairly conservative um, and tradition based in authority and Mm -hmm. passing on knowledge yeah well and it's a it's a literary exercise then it sounds Mm -hmm. like it's about engaging intellectually with the world and sort of finding deeper meaning Absolutely. In the natural world rather than observing what's going on in the natural world and drawing conclusions from it. Absolutely. It's an intellectual exercise. It's a literary exercise to some extent. And yeah, it's about thinking through creation and becoming a better person as a result. I often think that a lot of children's literature is quite bestiary-like in its pairing of text and image and overt um, moral instruction. It's much more narrative. We don't, you know, you don't tend to just have, well, I was going to say, you don't tend to just have collections of descriptions of animals, but really young children's literature is kind of like that. Is like that, yeah. Also, you know, Aslan is not so far off from like a bestiary lion, is he? Yes. Definitely. I mean, Lewis is clearly taking the medieval lion as Christ and and just running away with it. Yeah, so maybe the best way to kind of like think about this is to look at some individual creatures Mm -hmm. and sort of see how they go from bestiary animals to to fantasy. So maybe we should start with the unicorn. Okay. 
what's the unicorn like in in the medieval bestiary tradition? What are sort of like earliest unicorns about? You, you were talking about the monoceros. Mm. So the unicorn is fearsome. It's one of the fearsome beasts, which is not what a modern unicorn is like at all. I like to think of the unicorn as having been domesticated by modern fantasy. Um, the unicorn in the medieval tradition and the classical tradition is this fierce beast that's horse and stag-like, or one or the other, with a horn on its head, and it is very difficult to catch. Um, and it's usually aligned with women. So a maiden can catch a unicorn, it will come to the maiden and it will lie its head in her lap. And there's lots of complicated stuff about sexuality going on there, the one horned beast that will lie its head in the maiden's lap. And then she lures it in and then people come and stab it to death. So there's lots of medieval images of just horrific hunting scenes as well with all these sort of this nice lady with a nice little unicorn in her lap. No, it's a fearsome beast. Um, and then all these people attacking it with weapons and quite gory puncture wounds. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's intense. So that's the medieval best, best year unicorn. And then when does it change? I don't know. At what point the unicorn becomes a kind of domesticated horse who's just nice in the field um, or who's sort of hiding in the forest, who's last unicorning its way across the world to find its companions who've all been captured. There's quite something quite gendered going on as well, I think, where the movement is away from the fearsome, violent, heavily coated as masculine beast who's attracted to the maiden to a kind of unicorn that's quite feminized and gentle. I'm still thinking of The Last Unicorn. <laughs> I'm just so obsessed with that book, which is brilliant, and film, um, where it becomes a kind of hyper-feminized, gentle creature. And at that point, it's not the same animal as it was in the Middle Ages at all. Okay. I've never seen or read The Last Unicorn. So tell me all about it. Oh, Caroline. Okay. The first thing that you need to do is go and buy a copy of the book. <laughs> So it's Peter S. Beagle's book, The Last Unicorn, and it is the story of, well, it, it is what it says in the title, it is The Last Unicorn. So there's a unicorn who finds out just by happenstance that she's the last one of her kind, and she thinks this can't possibly be true, I must go and find the other unicorns, and she starts this epic journey where she meets um, a wizard and a traveling band of um, f fantastic creatures in this kind of creepy traveling zoo menagerie thing and she frees all of these uh, well she frees all these creatures who are not actually fantastic creatures they've been um, bedazzled to look as though they are but there is one other fantastic creature the harpy and she's apparently kind of like polar opposite of the unicorn and that she's violent and scary so she frees these animals she picks up the wizard who's with them who's also a kind of servant of this nasty witch and they off off they go on this journey to find her kin and in the process you discover that they've been driven into the ocean by the red bull i don't know what the red bull symbolizes um menstruation possibly or well there's a lot going on with time and aging and the loss of innocence and childhood um, and the red bull is this kind of beast that's pushing these innocent sweet creatures away from you know 
but this, yeah, it's kind of fantasy as the childhood that we must grow out of and that he's driven into the ocean and out of reach. Um, I don't want to spoil it all, but she does find them. <laughs> she does recapture her childhood innocence. She does free the unicorns. Okay, I spoiled it. Um, but there's this great cartoon, 80s, 90s, I don't know when it was made. I watched it as a child. Uh, and it's just wonderful and kind of anime, sort of anime style. It's just wonderful. And then there's also a graphic novel of it, which I'm just dying to teach someday because it's brilliant. Well, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how we have the sort of, you know, the fearsome beast, the medieval unicorn, who, as you say, is masculinized, right? And is attracted to a maiden uh, mm -hmm. and is an allegory for Christ and his death. And then in something like The Last Unicorn, the unicorn's female, the harpy's female, all of this, uh, you know, is about sort of um, a kind of feminized childhood. I missed the and most important part from my description of the book, which is that in order to not be caught by the Red Bull, she is turned into a human woman um, by this wizard who's not very good at what he's doing and he can't turn her back. And then there's a kind of meditation on She's now a woman. She's losing her magic. She's lost her innocence entirely. Um, she's sort of just fading away and slowly becoming more and more human and less magical. And so there's kind of play with how you can retain that magic in your life and whether she should turn back into the unicorn because she won't be caught by the Red Bull if she's a human, but is it worth living? <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. It's really deep. Wow. Yes, yeah, so it's like a so, really convoluted <laughs> allegory about growing up. It totally is. But also about time and about our past, because there's all this play with medieval knights as hunters of fantastic beasts. So at one point in her journey, um, there's this Prince Lear who goes off hunting and killing dragons to bring back as trophies to give to her. And she's just sort of looking on, going, I don't want this. Why would I want this? And he's like, but that's what knights do. So it's playing with the kind of medieval romance tropes as well. Um, it's great. Yeah. But anyway, yes, to get back to your point. So heavily feminized that she is depicted as a human woman and as kind of quite a beautiful and waif-like and fully nude at one point human woman is fully she's fully feminized the unicorn um yeah yeah so what what is she like then as a unicorn in the book the film the graphic novel what are what are unicorns like in this world do you mean physically physically uh also emotionally temperament i don't know what's what's yeah. the idea of a unicorn that the last unicorn puts forward so enigmatic and without the ability to regret is quite emphatic in this book that she doesn't hmm. she's not able to regret until she's become a human and then she's transformed back into unicorn she'll have this new ability to regret but not as a unicorn she's just this enigmatic creature who's kind of quite confident in the fact that it can't possibly be true that there are no other unicorns in the world and she will go and find them. She's hard and soft at the same time, tough as nails and willing to take on this huge red bull, but also she's, you know, this very beautiful white horse that's so clearly a kind of, yeah, metaphor for childhood in the past. And regret is clearly part of the adult human condition. Oh yeah, yeah, right. totally. 
Yeah. Yikes, that hits a little close to home. <laughs> it's so close to home. I right? think that's why I keep, I keep going back to it because, yeah, it like, meant something to me as a child when I first watched it as a film and I couldn't articulate why, but going back and watching it again as an adult, I just get the same kind of feeling of sorrow from it. It's just beautiful and reading it as well because it's beautifully written. I always felt the same way about that moment in Peter Pan when Peter comes back for Wendy, but she's Mm -hmm. a grown woman uh, and she can't go with him to Neverland. And she thinks to herself, woman, woman, let go of me. The passage of time is horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Especially during a pandemic. Tell me about it. But so, okay, so now we're in the sort of white horse world of of unicorns. Um, So the Monoceros was not a white horse. I think the colour of the horse is quite... I don't know if that's modern. I don't think the bestiaries focus so much on what it looks like, apart from that it's part stag. Mm -hmm. So there's not... The stag is, you know, a tawny colour. It's not mentioned... I don't think. I need to go back and look at all the sources if it does come up somewhere. But no, that's... That seems to be kind of part of its domestication is its change in colour. Hmm. I'm determined to read this domestication process. But that seems like that is what's happening, right? Let me get those famous tapestries, right, that depict unicorns in in woodlands from the Mm. the 14th century. Mm -hmm. And those creatures are, again, they're they're meant to approach maidens, right? They come to to meet women in the wood. Um, But they're, you know, portrayed as these sort of delicate animals, right? Mm. And the unicorn doesn't quite look like a horse, right? It does look like it's maybe part stag. The hooves are cloven. Um, the ears don't look quite horse-like, um, but it's very sort of slender uh, and lovely um, in, a, in a sort of unexpected way. Yeah, that elongated body and very deer-like body, stag-like body, absolutely. And that's something that the animation for The Last Unicorn draws on. It's very kind of horse slash stag like but then when you think about unicorns in other pop culture contexts contemporary contexts they're often like kind of blocky horse like or even pony like because you know they're all over children's you know clothing and merchandise as these sort of chubby little pony unicorns and that's just that process that movement is so telling i think of this domestication is a completely different type of animal <laughs> hybridity it's interesting too isn't it that once an animal gets feminized in our cultural narrative, then it becomes something for children, Mm -hmm. right? It stops being something serious and it becomes something for children and specifically for girls. Yes. I think there's also an element in which sensible adult grown-up people don't believe in mythical creatures. So unicorns are for girls and dragons are also not to be believed but they're ferocious and violent so we'll put them for boys so there we are adults don't like to play with either of those because we know the truth they don't exist and then they're gendered and separated out because of such obsession with binary gender in contemporary pop work pop culture markets and capitalism and selling toys down children's throats. Yeah, Yeah. our culture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And that actually leads us nicely into another magical creature who appears 
so often in fantasy literature and is, you know, widespread in folklore all over the world, which is, of course, the dragon, part of any one of a number of, like, gigantic lizard or serpent traditions that we get everywhere. Um, so where where does sort of the the dragon that we get in English language fantasy, um, you know, fire-breathing, scaly claws, where does that dragon start? Yeah, so I mean, that's coming out of classical as well, um, where you've got lots of descriptions of the dragon as the king of the serpents, um, or the most fearsome of the serpents, the basilisk is often the king of the serpents, um, but as a kind of equated with serpents, um, and then it kind of develops its wings later, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously we have dragons all over the world in different contexts. I don't know enough about Chinese history and culture, but the dragon fulfills a very different function there, a very positive function um, in contrast to the kind of fierce and scary dragon that we have in a lot of fantasy lit from the Western world. And that's partly because the dragon, I mean, if the unicorn is a symbol for Christ in the medieval bestiary tradition, the dragon is a symbol for the devil. Mm. And so it's, violent and fierce and fiery burning hell and all those bad things are associated with it um and that's why it's kind of elided with serpents as well um because of the serpent in the garden of eden that's all kind of mashed together throw in some wings focus on the big heavy tail and the fearsome um jaws and fire breathing and you know it's just a kind of the epitome of all the bad stuff therefore it's diabolic um and it's definitely not feminized until what shrek <laughs> maybe before that <laughs> shrek and even that first like sexy female dragon i've ever seen in even Pop- that the point of that is that it's a joke the point of that is that it's subversive of gender norms that you think the dragon's male because of course you do and then it turns out that it's female and therefore not really a threat at all Right. love interest now and I think it's playing that film is playing with those it's not necessarily propping them up but it's definitely having a stab at those kinds of power dynamics and social dynamics yeah the joke of course in Shrek is that we don't think the dragon could possibly be female there's no chance of it and then the sort of second part of the joke is that if the dragon's female she's a she's a terrifying woman yeah. right yeah. And her, her, the fact that she's fallen in love with the donkey is like an imminent threat to his well-being. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, if she's female, she must have a love interest because that's the point of women. Uh, we can't possibly have a female character who's not interested in love. Although I think the film is playing with that to some extent. Must be. Um, resisting it to some extent in its in the silliness of that episode and playing it up so much and satirizing it. Um, but yes, then, of course, she's this kind of, this, they're the, the strange animal couple that doesn't belong together. And she just becomes this love soppy servant to him. Yeah, naturally. That's the thing with female monsters, isn't it? They either have to get tamed and get less monstrous, or their femininity makes them even worse monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking a little bit of like the xenomorph from Alien. Okay, Yes. And I'm thinking also definitely of um, It in Stephen King's It, where the revel- the great revelation of the whole book, like what's meant to be the most chilling moment is when they discover, and the line that King writes is, it was female and it was pregnant. Oh, 
oh, so this fear of reproduction that the monster can continue to reproduce itself and that will be overrun with monsters because the female body has this ability to reproduce itself. That's really interesting. Oh, I was going to say, I wonder what a baby dragon and donkey combo is, but of course that happens at the end of Shrek because just as the woman can't exist as a creature or a character in her own right, she also must fulfill her responsibility and have babies by the end of the story. Um, yeah. yeah, and they make these really weird, non-threatening <laughs> dragon-donkey hybrids. Yeah, yeah. Oh, such a strange film. It is such a strange film. <laughs> can't think too hard about Shrek or it, it does mm -hmm. my head in. But then we have dragons and all sorts of other fantasy texts. I mean, presumably anyone who's listening to this is waiting for us to talk about Game of Thrones. Yes, Those let's, dragons. let's talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> dragons. Those dragons are all coded as male, aren't they? I like that we've turned this into a discussion about gender and sexuality, which is exactly the right thing to do with this. You know, um, but that's like the kind of mother of dragons, Daenerys character who has these sort of She's trying to, not tame, but she is aligned with these violent male bodies who do her whims um, and her bidding, but in a kind of, kind of a much more of a Jurassic Parky way in that you have to respect the animal. The animal is real. The animal has its own wishes, but that you can become a kind of, I don't know, keeper of the animals. And she's doing this in a motherly capacity. Hmm. Yeah, well, and the thing, the sort of Jurassic Park-like, especially about mm -hmm. George R. R. Martin's dragons, they're not really innovative in terms of the way that the beasts are portrayed right there. Big, they're scaly, they breathe fire, they have claws, they're reptiles. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not uh, deviating too much from other fantasy dragons that we see, mm -hmm. but George is really interested in real politic, right? Mm -hmm. That's his whole thing, is uh, that in, in the real fantasy world, uh, there are debts and blood and death and assault and your dragons need to eat people mm -hmm. to stay yeah. alive. And so they are these sort of, they're, they're in some ways more animalistic mm -hmm. than other dragons that we see because that's what he's interested in, right? Is, is the sort of the gritty reality of, of dealing with a beast. Yeah, absolutely. And that's made me think more about Shrek, which is that the other humorous angle of the donkey-dragon uh, relationship is that he's a prey animal and she's, she's a carnivore, she's a predator. So that relationship's not going to work on so many different levels. And if though that story was played out in Game of Thrones, she would swoop down from the air, burn him up and eat him immediately. And probably the person who was riding him or using him as a, a pack donkey. Um, so yes, absolutely. That's that that kind of focus on the day to day. You know, who needs to eat what? How are we going to feed these dragons that are enormous and are eating whole flocks of sheep and the shepherds? Um, that's precisely. I mean, you summarized it beautifully. What Martin does that's different too, but also building on a long tradition of other fantasy literature and historical writings. Hmm. Yeah. And if we're talking about mothers as well, mm. the idea, Danny says at one point that her dragons are the only children she'll ever have. Mm. What, what's going on there with motherhood and beasts and the way that her story ends in Game of Thrones? Yeah, I mean, that focus on the kind of monstrous mother, like you wouldn't think that 
that women must fulfill this role of being a mother, which she can't do and therefore fills the void, um, not with as many modern pet keepers do, with a cuddly little fluffy thing, but with these vicious creatures, suggests that her maternal instinct has gone wrong somehow. Um, but equally, it's imbued with a huge amount of power, and I don't think it's criticized in the books, it's lauded as a kind of, I mean, there's so many monstrous mothers in that book. Circe is such a great example. It really moves away from the norms of genteel motherhood. You know, it's questioning all of those kinds of normalized gendered tropes. Um, and it's doing that with her too. But this kind of hybridity and monstrosity involved in being the mother of dragons gives her power. I don't think it's a criticism of her. I really wish the show had ended with the episode before it ended and she had just burned everyone. I don't hate that as an alternative <laughs> ending to Game of Thrones. And also not died. I think it's such a cop-out that her male lover has to kill her in the end because that there's so much that's subversive about the way relationships are played out and that just seems to be back to our old tropes of male violence and female um, well, and femicide of murder of women. Um, I know that she did a bad thing in burning everyone up, but wouldn't that be, I mean, in a kind of, as a post-capitalist dream, we just burn the world down? I think that would be quite fun. As a, as a fiction, not reality, just for the record. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for the record, we are not advocating the burning of the world. <laughs> but there is a sense almost in which the burning of everything would be a fitting end mm. to Game of Thrones. This sense that uh, there's rot in the system mm -hmm. that we can't actually properly eradicate and that Targaryen power as exemplified by the dragon, right, mm -hmm. is power, but it's also fire and blood. So do you think when Daenerys six her dragons on people who are her opponents, She's a kind of, she's metaphorically consuming them through her children's literal consumption of them. I mean, she's a colonial figure in a way. She's a colonial figure. And what's really interesting is that the only person we see her dragons eat in the show is a child mm. in Marine. I think that is probably sort of an appropriate symbol of mm. how Daenerys as a, you know, the mother and the savior in Marine has actually not saved the city from anything at all. You know, when we think about colonialism and when we mm -hmm. think about, um, you know, sort of the way that some people exert cultural hegemony over mm -hmm. others, this is like the, the sort of, it's, it's such a precise and awful and bloody metaphor for that kind of violence. Certainly that's something that the show never really grappled with in us in a suitable way, the, the colonialism of its own casting decisions was also a problem in its sort of, yeah, its racial dynamics were deeply problematic, but I think it did at least turn her from the white savior into the kind of violent colonialist that she clearly was always on the path to become. So that's one little check. Yeah. <laughs> her, but her violence is only really condemned by the show when it's yes. the white people of King's Landing, right? Yes. I wondered if we were going to bring the dragon round to Old Norse because I was thinking when you were talking about eating hearts 
I was thinking about various Old Norse figures who can talk to dragons and, or who um, eat bits of creatures and get to understand their speech and things like that. Well, I mean, yeah, let's, so we've had our sort of animal dragons, right? Our sort of Jurassic Park bestial dragons. And then we've got mm -hmm. the other tradition that comes down to us through Tolkien of the clever dragon, right? The mm -hmm. talking dragon. And that comes from our Norse stuff and in part from Beowulf as well. Mm -hmm. Volsunga Saga has a really fascinating dragon. And because Tolkien liked this dragon so much, so much of our sort of sword and sorcery dragons descend from this old Norse ideal because Tolkien was so into it, right? So the, our, the idea that dragons hoard gold, right? That dragons sit on, that they like gold, that they sit on it and they don't let other people have it. Uh, and if you take something from it, the dragon will lay waste to the countryside. That comes from Beowulf, where Beowulf the aged king is confronted with this dragon um, who uh, wreaks havoc on Gatland when uh, a, a slave steals a cup from his hoard, which is what Bilbo does in, in The Hobbit, incidentally. So this idea of the dragon as a symbol of greed, right? The dragon as a symbol of using gold the wrong way, not using it to give to your followers and make social bonds um, and give rewards and bring everybody together, but sitting on the gold for your own purposes. Um, that's a medieval dragon ideal. And the dragon that we get in Volsunga Saga uh, is like that too. He's called Fafnir, uh, and he used to be a person of some kind. Um, he uh, becomes so obsessed with a hoard of gold uh, that his father has um, that he kills his father, and then he goes and he sits on the gold, right? He sits with it. Uh, and the suggestion is that he turns into a dragon uh, because he's so gold-obsessed that it sort of transforms him into this creature. Um, and his other brother, Regan, um, gets the hero, Sigurdr, to kill Falknir for him. Um, and so Sigurdr gets himself into a hole with his sword, and he waits until the dragon crawls over him, belly to the ground, uh, and then he stabs up into it. Uh, and so that's also where we get this idea that the dragon's belly is a weak spot, right? Mm -hmm. That it's this armored lizard except for its underbelly. Um, and when, as Falknir is dying, he speaks to Sigurdr and he tries to get him to say his name. And Sigurdr doesn't. He sort of talks very cleverly. He talks in riddles. He doesn't want Falknir to know his name. Uh, and Falknir tries to warn him about trusting Regan. Uh, he tries to drive a wedge there. Um, and it doesn't really work. Um, and then he dies. And Sigurdr is roasting the heart of the dragon for Regan, who wants to eat it. And he touches it with his finger and he burns himself. And so he puts his finger in his mouth. And he gets some of the dragon blood in his mouth and that allows him to understand birds. And he hears these two birds talking, saying that Regan is planning to betray Sigurdr and kill him and take the whole horde for himself. And so Sigurdr kills Regan instead. So this sort of clever, crafty, talking dragon who is all about, you know, making you doubt, right? Poking holes in your ideals, trying to get to you. Um, we get that from Falknir.
So mm -hmm. dragons are very long lasting. Mm -hmm. I think because of the sort of potency of this symbolism, right? That if, you know, it's, it's everything, everything evil, everything dangerous all wrapped up into one creature. Mm -hmm. and so then you can have a sort of bestial evil or you can have a very clever, intelligent uh, evil that's sort of reminiscent of the medieval tradition of the way that the devil kind of, uh, you know, reels you in a little bit, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hence that riddling speech, which is interesting considering we've brought up riddles before, um, but that riddling talk, that deceptive talk that you can't quite get a handle on, couldn't be more different from the context of Old English and Latin riddles being written around the same time where they're being used to reflect on um, spiritual issues or on you know their intellectual exercises. They're not there to deceive. But at the same time, they can lead you down the down the wrong route if you solve the onion as a penis instead of an onion. Then that's you being a bit naughty, not the riddle. It's not the riddle's fault. Um, but yeah, that that kind of deceptive sliding um, language of riddling, which we see in these texts. Funny how that comes back around. I mean, arguably. In the last unicorn we have some kind of riddling areas where she's trying to figure out where these other unicorns are and she talks to the butterfly and the butterfly seems to speak all in riddles and in snippets of different um pop cultural contexts and he's, he's she just wants a straight answer and he's sort of bringing up an etymology or a bit of a song or all these different things and she's frustrated by this um, and he's a flying creature too so <laughs> bird-like dragon-like well and animals talking in riddling speech is something that we get a lot right the, the sphinx is our sort mm -hmm. of original you Absolutely. know non-human animal that speaks in a riddle i mean even like the cheshire cat yes. in alice in wonderland sort of talks in the way that everybody talks in wonderland which is a little bit mm -hmm. upside down it seems to mean something but then it doesn't quite yeah but there's sort of there's a way in which animals can kind of embody the dangerous potential mm. of speech, right? Because mm -hmm. it's it's not human. And so it's one step removed from us, we can sort of look at the dangerous possibilities of, of lying, of deceiving, of manipulation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of wrap up our discussion, speaking about people and animals and the difference between them, mm. might be good to talk a little bit about some of the sort of human-animal hybrid type creatures that we get in fantasy texts. And I wonder if maybe mermaids and sirens would yes. be Yes, oh well, there's your power of speech, absolutely. The yeah. dangers of speech, good segue. Yeah, so tell me about mermaids and sirens. Okay, so mermaids, I mean, this is insofar as, well, okay, I was gonna say insofar as humans can be domesticated, but of course we've domesticated ourselves. Um, they, the mermaid over time has become a kind of soft and um, comfortable creature who is not at all like her original form, because initially we don't have mermaids, we have sirens, and we have these in classical um, literature, we have these in, in natural histories from that period, um, although, clearly evoked as a metaphor when they appear in natural histories. They're not, they're not painted as real, they're described as a metaphor. And the siren are the sirens are these women who are half woman, half either fish or bird. Hmm. So they actually start off as bird women and become 
um, fish women. <clears throat> Um, and they lure men with their beautiful singing to their deaths in the ocean. Um, so we have them as birds initially, and then we have some really cool bestiaries where it describes them as fish women, but shows them as bird women or vice versa, um, or sometimes has both. It doesn't have both, I don't remember. Um, but then they become very clearly associated with fish only. But it's that singing element um, that associates them with birds who are known for their melodious voices. Um, and then they become half fish, half woman, um, and lure sailors to their doom. We have a good example in the 13th century Middle English version of the Physiologus, which is quite a pretty version, um, beautifully uh, versified. Its poetics are really nice. And there's a mermaid in, there's a mermaid in that who lures men to their death, but then you know, over time we jump and we get the Little Mermaid film, which is also very interested in the power of the voice and song in a way that I hadn't really thought about until I studied medieval literature. Um, but she's a siren as well. Her voice lures the prince and then her voice is appropriated and that lures the prince and, you know, bedazzles him and almost leads to his doom. Um, until she gets her voice back. So that's really quite cool um, playing with that. Yeah. My so, favorite character in The Little Mermaid has always been Ursula. Yeah, she's great. Talk about hybridity. She's yeah. brilliant. Well, and that's the thing. And she is more hybrid than the mermaids, right? Who yeah. have sort of a full human form mm -hmm. uh, attached to a tail. There's sort of the, there's the human bit and then there's the, the fish bit. With yeah. Ursula, her sort of octopus body is also her sexy dress. Yes. Uh, it kind of merges in a way that the other bodies don't. And her purple skin. The other bodies in the film because it's big, right? Yes. She's fat. Uh, yeah. She's curvaceous. And that first scene when she drapes herself over a rock and says that she's wasted away into practically nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And she's purple throughout her body, so that's bringing the animal through. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard slash read that her character was based off the famous drag queen Divine. So there's another element of, of complicating gender and sexuality going on there as well. Um, and yeah. she's fabulous. <laughs> I think about this connection a lot because I yeah. love Divine, who is an amazing drag queen. The star of all of John Waters's yeah, um, most famous and provocative films. Mm -hmm. And Divine would paint herself with this incredible face, with these hugely arched, pencil-thin eyebrows, uh, big sort of red lips, and a beauty spot, exactly mm -hmm. the way mm -hmm. Ursula has. Um, and Divine sort of embodied this incredible kind of gender play, right? Mm -hmm. A femininity that was not meant to be pretty, that was not meant to be nice. Um, that was meant to be looked at and that was meant to be sexual and that was meant to take up space. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Ursula takes up space, you know, um, as we're talking about dragons, Maleficent in Sleeping Beauty, right, for the sort of big boss fight, she turns into a dragon. She yeah. becomes a dragon for the prince to slay to sort of make it easier that he kills her. Yeah. Um, she doesn't, you know, go out to face him as a woman. She becomes an animal so that he can kill her. Ursula, for the final boss battle, is herself just gigantic, huge, yeah, taking up all of this space. 
mm -hmm. uh, as this sort of, you know, human animal hybrid with her incredible tentacles. And so again, what's frightening is suspect femininity. And her in the huge amount of power that she has in becoming enormous and in taking up space is also her downfall because the ship is weaponized and can plunge into her heart and kill her. Whereas if she'd been very small, that would have been quite difficult to do. So her power is yeah, what leads to her death. But isn't it kind of cool that that's so, like in such a mainstream text, we have a famous drag artist appearing? All Disney villains are queer coded. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I immediately thought of Scar from The Lion King. Absolutely queer-coded. And then, and also his interest in kind of moving between different communities is subversive. And why would he want to go and live with hyenas? There's something going on there with a, an interest in keeping the nation pure, which is really disturbing, actually. Wow. Really disturbing. Um, who else? We have loads of villains like Scar and like Jafar mm. in Disney who fall into the trope of the sissy villain. Yeah. Right? So the hero has brawn and the villain has brains, right? The villain mm. is clever and he mm. speaks very articulately and sort of in a kind of snake-like way. Yeah. Riddles. Um, he speaks in riddles. Manipulative like a dragon, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, like Faulkner. Yeah. Um, and so the sissy villain is really convenient for Disney because he doesn't engage in brutish violence of the mm -hmm. sort that would scare children. Mm -hmm. um, but also because the sissy villain, the natural enemy to the heterosexual love story that Disney's so invested in, mm -hmm. is the disaffected queer person. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of, yeah, the lack of interest in reproduction. There's lots of really good queer theory on... Um, queerness as death, as a death drive. That's the term, the death drive. Yes. Um, because there's no interest in reproducing in a heteronormative way, the only end result then can be death, which is theoretically very interesting, obviously not true. Um, but from a theoretical perspective, they all, all those characters embody that death drive, don't they? Yeah. When a desire to dismantle social structures and a desire to concentrate power in themselves mm -hmm. and a desire to prevent heterosexual union right that's mm -hmm. that's sort of their main job is to get in the way of yeah. the hero and the heroine and in the lion king that results in a barren landscape that can't sustain itself it results in death for everyone i think it's really telling that if you want to talk about animals in fantasy and in literature you and what you end up talking about is people Mm -hmm. and who gets to be a person mm. and who's aligned with the monstrous yeah well that's that question of hybridity isn't it we talked we said we were going to talk about mermaids because of these creatures who are part human part not human and the discomfort of where what you do with those bodies what you do with a fish that can talk and has opinions and has a powerful voice or what you do with you know a centaur who's a powerful a horse, an educator in classical context, but also violent and can attack you with weapons. Um, all of these hybrid bodies are, are anxiety provoking and um, uncomfortable, and they're often aligned with other kinds of um, cultural anxieties and social anxieties in really interesting ways. Hey, you really put your finger on it. 
Um, so much of, of fantasy creatures is about troubling the, they're scary because they trouble the boundaries between things mm-hmm. and a, something that is, um, you know, a hybrid human creature it troubles our idea of what is human, how we define ourselves as humans, where do we start and stop, what makes us different mm-hmm. from animals. Um, and the you know medieval people had very fixed theological ideas about what distinguished us from animals, but that's, we're still flesh and blood, right? We still live mm-hmm. on the planet, we still need to eat food, and uh, you know, we, we are part of and apart from the natural world, and so it's, it's troubling when mm-hmm. those boundaries get get crossed and it's it's dangerous right you know what's out there in the sea maybe it's a siren who will lure you to your death yes the un- the fear of the unknown and yeah all of these things brought together which are then complicated even more when evolutionary thinking becomes the dominant narrative um, instead of theological thinking and then that's when people are start putting these uh, start policing these boundaries in really problematic ways with cultures they encounter in other contexts. And then you see dehumanization and you see horrific, violent, racist thinking coming through as well, um, which we should always interrogate when we, when we think about these texts and we think about the power dynamics of what's going on with policing the boundaries and human-animal relationships. We also have to think about human-human relationships and where dehumanizing other people has benefited people who already have an enormous amount of privilege and wealth and power um that's gone down quite a dark and pedagogical route but it's really important to think about um yeah and animal studies as a field a field i'm really interested in is just now realizing that you can't talk about animality without talking about race and cultural constructions of otherness Mm -hmm. because it's always the question of who deserves to be a person. Yeah, absolutely. 